Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Don Jeffries, and I've been on shows with him talking about some current events. Uh, one was about Julian Assange. You can check out some of those earlier uh, interviews that I've done on divulgence with Don. Uh, he's an author. He's written a number of books. He has one coming out next month, but some of his earlier books. One is The Unreals, published 2015. Hidden History, an Expose of Modern Crimes, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups in American Politics. That was published 2017. Also, Survival of the Richest, How the Corruption of the Marketplace and the Disparity of Wealth Created the Greatest Conspiracy of All, published 2017. And then another, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, published 2019 with a foreword by Ron Paul. And then another title is Bullyocracy, How the Social Hierarchy Enables Bullies to Rule Schools, Workplaces, and Society at Large, 2020. I've been in corporate America, so I know about that. Um, also, his new book, which will come out next month, is titled On Borrowed Time. And he can talk more about that. He also has a show that you can listen to live on Wednesday uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Ocelli.com. I'll put that in the, in the show notes as well. But um, today we're going to talk about a subject that I listened to Don talk about. And it's, it's somebody who really... I think more Americans should know about somebody who I didn't know much about uh, coming from California. His name is Huey Long. He was also referred to himself as the Kingfish, which is kind of like the greatest or something. And a very interesting character. So to start off the show before Don goes into talking about Huey Long, I'm going to play a speech that he did. And you can find it on YouTube. It's called Share the Wealth. So it'll take about three minutes. But you'll see his really skilled oratorical style uh, without notes. So. To the tables which we have assembled, it is our estimate that 4% of the American people own 85% of the wealth of America, and that over 70% of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debts that they owe. How many men ever went to a barbecue? And would let one man take off the table what's intended for nine-tenths of the people to eat. The only way you'll ever be able to feed the balance of the people is to make that man come back and bring back some of that grub he ain't got no business with. Now, how are you going to feed the balance of the people? What's Morgan and Baruch and Rockefeller and Mellon going to do with all that grub? They can't eat it. They can't wear the clothes. They can't live in the house. Give them a yacht. Give them a pilot. Send them to Reno and give them a new wife when they want it. That's what they want. But when they've got everything on the God's living earth that they can eat and they can wear and they can live in, and all that their children can live in and wear and eat and all their children's children can use, then we got to call Mr. Morgan and Mr. Mellon and Mr. Rockefeller back and say, come back here. Put that stuff back on this table here that you took away from here that you don't need. Leave something else for the American people to consume. And that's the problem. We're not going to destroy the Gulf Refining Company. We're not going to destroy the Standard Oil Company, but we're going to say that the limit of any one man's stock ownership in the Standard Oil Company 
is from three to five million dollars to that individual, and that the balance of the people of America own the balance of what the Standard Oil Company's worth. All right. Then, we start from the bottom that the 25 or more million American families shall have a homestead, a home, and the comforts of a home, including an automobile and a radio, the things it takes in that house to live on. We say to America, 125 million, none shall be too big, none shall be too poor, none shall work too much, none shall be idle. No luxurious mansions entry, none walking the streets, none impoverished, none in pestilence, none in want, but in the land blessed by the smile of the Creator, with everything to be consumed, to be eaten, to be worn, that America will become a land sharing the fruits of the land, not for the favored few. Not to satisfy greed, but that all may live in a land in which the Lord has provided an abundance sufficient for the luxury and convenience of the people in general, I think. Gotcha. So very interesting short speech, uh, about three and a half minutes. But uh, Don, welcome to the show. And for people who may not have heard of your background, can you talk about your interest in Huey Long and where that began, please? Can you hear well, uh, thanks for having me. You know, it's it's oh, yeah, sure. it's uh, you know, I mean, it probably goes back to my childhood, and uh, you know, when I was a uh, just a youngster, I remember in those days they actually used to still teach uh, at least a little real history. I got my interest in the especially the the revolutionary era, still one of my great areas of interest. But I, I remember when they talked about Huey Long, I and they just you know just this, the idea of a share the wealth movement, it, it, it hit something in me because I think I recognized even as a little kid how unequal things were uh, as far as the disparity of wealth. And of course, in those days, the, the disparity of wealth was nowhere near what it is now. Actually, you know, during my childhood, it was probably the most equitable time in American history. The post-war boom, you know, really created opportunities. The middle class was thriving. Suburbs were being built. You know, we lived in the suburbs. So uh, nobody wanted for anything, really, and every job paid a living wage. But something about it kindled something in me. I always had an antipathy for the very rich and the wealthy from the time I was a little kid. I, I don't really know why, but it just, I always felt that the system was rigged. Even as a little kid, I understood. I, I recognized unfairness. And Huey Long represented to me the strongest voice I ever heard pointing this out in no uncertain terms. And, uh, you know, when I started listening to his speeches and reading about him, first of all, I recognized how uh, unfairly he was treated. By everyone, and I think that's what it needs to be looked at. And what I, I hope I'm trying to restore his his reputation the best I can with the platforms I have. But Huey Long was, uh, to me, as as especially as a, when I became a teenager and I started to become politically aware, you know, I gravitated to the left, to the far left, you know, and I was a dream civil libertarian, uh, very radical in all my beliefs. But uh, you know, I, I cared very much about the poor and any poverty and all that, but not in the conventional democratic way. I recognized even at that time that people like LBJ were frauds. I mean, I, you know, 
I instantly thought he was, you know, connected to the JFK's assassination. So I, I didn't think those were the answers. But I looked back at somebody like Huey Long, the populist type solution, and that's why Huey Long is dangerous to the left and the right both. The right, obviously, you know, because they still gravitate so much to big business and banks, and uh, this is their natural, you know, instinct to, to protect corporate America. They look at somebody like Huey Long, and oh my God, he's like a communist, a Marxist, a socialist. But no, he's not. He's the antithesis of that because if you look at, and I point out, I wrote a whole section on Huey in uh, Survival of the Riches, which is my book about the rigged economy. So he fits in well there. And I also go into his assassination in depth. But if you look at how they treated him during his life, and especially, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt probably was behind his assassination. That's what he thought. He basically, you know, accused the Roosevelt administration of plotting to kill him on the floor of the Senate. And a month later, uh, he was killed. So you can, you can hear a pretty good prediction. But uh, he was, his obituary, is it's just amazing to read it. The, the New York Times was just so unkind to him. The, Communist Party, the American Communist Party, the, the American Socialist Party, both just slandered him in death. All to call him a demagogue. Now, this... If he really was, you know, what the right says he is, they should have, this should have been their hero. And liberals should have loved him because this was a guy who walked the walk. So many liberals don't walk the walk. If you look at his, and I, that's what I go into, the actual facts, and I'm indebted to uh, uh, to Huey Long's great-granddaughter, Audra Snyder, who's still uh, living, you know, trying to, basically the one person that's still pushing his legacy. So her excellent website has, you know, the, the facts there, the figures and uh, Huey Long, first of all, while he created an unprecedented program to the people of Louisiana, he turned it basically from a giant swamp. Talking about a massive infrastructure project. I mean, he paved the entire state, built great uh, highways and bridges. Uh, he uh, invented the concept of, of adult education. For Huey Long, there was no such thing in NC. So adults were going back to school. He's the first one to offer free textbooks to children. He's the first one to, to build free health care clinics all across the state. He offered uh, uh, health care and mental health care to prisoners. He opened mental health care institutions for people who were not really criminals, but were insane. And they, they were thrown into prison before that. He, was, he had empathy and he, he acted like what we think of the term liberal, what I think of, what I think of myself. You know, empathy for others, a reform minded. And he did all this. With, by operating with the third lowest cost of any state. So he knew how to do it. He, he was going after, he knew, I mean, for instance, he pretty much abolished property tax for the, for the common people. I think it was like 80 or 90% of people paid no property tax under Huey Long. He stopped foreclosures. And his cost in utilities, he went after the utility companies as well as Standard Oil, Rockefellers. He had, you know, very powerful enemies. And uh, he saved the average family, and I forget the exact number. It's in, it's in Survival of the Riches, but it's, it would be the equivalent of, I think, a couple hundred dollars or something, or maybe more, in monthly utility expenses, that, which is pretty significant. Right. And so people saw significant uh, results from his policies, and that's why, you know, to this day, the people that are alive and remember him and, and you know, revere his memory. And you, in Louisiana, there were houses that had a picture of Huey Long right alongside, you know, picture of Jesus. I mean, that he was their hero, and uh, he also cut across racial lines. And that's the interesting thing, especially in our woke society, where they're they're anxious to discredit anybody by calling them racist. It's interesting that no one has ever called Huey Long racist. All the speeches he has, they cannot find a single thing he ever said. 
It could be even this is again, this is the 1930s in the South. He uh, the Klan opposed him. He repudiated racial politics. And he was like what I try to do. I've tried to follow his lead. I keep stressing that's why I get in trouble with the left and the right too, because I don't like uh, you know talking about race. So I hate the idea of white privilege and all that nonsense. I'm talking about class, and that's what Huey did too. Huey didn't care what color they were, white, black, purple, whatever. He knew that the people who were poor, the working class, were getting a raw deal, and that was his entire program. He wanted to. He wanted to lift everybody up. He didn't want everybody to be exactly the same. And this is another thing most people don't know. I didn't know. His share of the wealth proposal. And he had economists working on this. He had it worked out. Uh, his income tax proposal would have exempted the first uh, million dollars of income from any taxes at all. This was in the 30s. And we've got equivalent of $12 million today. So you can understand why he had powerful enemies, because under his proposal, virtually no one but the top, top tier of the 1% would have been paying income taxes. This is what distinguished him from FDR, who was surrounded by bankers. And, F, you know, Huey just you know, lambasted him all the time for spending time on your yacht, all that kind of that he was doing and uh, and surrounding himself by these crony insiders and coming up with these kinds of uh, income tax proposals that we saw what happened over the decades. What they did is basically just transferred wealth from the middle class to uh, the upper classes. And, you know, very little ever went down to the to the poor. To the poor people. And right. So Long's share of the wealth was in direct competition with the New Deal, right? Right. Exactly. That's why he was, Roosevelt called him the most dangerous person in America. Yeah, well, yeah, right. I mean, right there. And so, I mean, it's remarkable, too, as a populist, he really came from nothing. I think he was like one of nine children. He's really a remarkably talented person. I think from his oratory, he's very clever. He also had that kind of southern Louisiana draw there, too. But he was very, I think he was really much more associated with the common person than uh, somebody who was like a silver spoon Brahmin from the East Coast like Roosevelt. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And he, he was, uh, you know, he he said when he began his career, when he became a lawyer, his credo, and, he, and in contrast him to somebody like Abraham Lincoln, who if you read my book, Crimes and Cover-Ups, it's a real picture of Lincoln, I think. You know, I think he was the greatest tyrant we've ever had. But Lincoln was a corporate lawyer. He represented the railroads and, and banks. That's who he represented. He never represented, although, you know, the image of him is you know, the rail splitter. No, no, he didn't represent common people. Uh, Huey Long started at his career, his credo was, I will never take a case against a poor man. That was his credo. So he he went against the railroads and the banks. And, you know, that's why uh, certainly uh, Standard Oil, Rockefellers really despised him. And they, you know, they might, might have had a hand in his assassination as well. So he was the real deal. He was, he was and that's why, you know, you, you look at, you know, some of these people that end up, you know, getting assassinated. And Huey Long, I think, had a target on his back years and the, the the job that the court historians have done and i and most of what i write about hidden history i try to set the record straight i'm not lobbying for anybody but in the case of huey long i don't know that any other figure has been misrepresented as much as the court historians have had because this guy was a, someone who got results and the left should absolutely revere him he should be their patron saint because this is he did what they so supposedly want to do. Right. Talk about all the time, right? Exactly. <laughs> the but corporate left probably hates Huey Long. I mean, 
but what is there? Can you define like or or say what the misrepresentation is? Like he was supposedly a tyrant, I think. They said that he abrogated tons of power to himself, uh, yeah. petty tyrant. I mean, not so all his critics really tried, like you're right, they tried to paint him with a certain brush. Maybe you can talk about what they attempted to, or what they, I think, maybe successfully did in yeah. structuring the perception of Huey Long. Sure. Well, if you, if you can see all the king's men and, and things like that, where they, the fictional representation of Huey Long, he's basically shown to be a big blowhard who uh, hinted that he is thoroughly corrupt and power hungry. But uh, again, there are no real specific examples of that because, of course, there were Huey Long men. He was a divisive figure, so the people that loved him really loved him. And so he had supporters, but he also had lots and lots more, many more powerful opponents. Common people loved him, and that's why uh, he continued to be elected. But this entire thing, of, as far as corruption, they came up with this absurd thing called the deduct box. They came claimed Huey had a box called the deduct. Now, you know, first of all, how much money could you have fit in a box to begin with? I mean, the whole thing was the idea of talking about a level of corruption, even if true. You're talking about something incredibly minor when you're, you know, for, for instance, his arch enemy, Franklin Roosevelt, one of the comments I unearthed for crimes and cover up is uh, crimes and cover up. Is he, he once said publicly that if they ever caught me for all the, the crimes I, I've been committed, I'd be put away for 99 years or something like that. I mean, he admitted himself. So uh, these were high crimes and shenanigans that were going on all around Huey Long. And they understood what a threat he represented because you talk about somebody just, just think of that this was what he was talking about share of the wealth now people think of that's what communism is but you look into the the, the, the writings of i mean other than marx would come up with some kind of you know uh, little sound bites like workers of the world unite you have nothing to lose but your change which strikes a chord in workers but marx uh, certainly by the time lenin came around Trotsky, whose real name was Lev Bronstein from New York, by the way, was a remote right. Russian. He's a friend of the ships, yeah. He lived with <laughs> exactly. the ships. Exactly. And you read the book Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, and you'll, you'll see who, you know, by Anthony Sutton, who, uh, right. you'll see who financed that. But uh, you don't you don't find in their speeches the same kind of, uh, of uh, pleas to, you know, everybody should have at least this much. You know, everybody should have the bare minimum and the widest people at the top. And they're, they're not talking about that. Instead, they're talking about government uh, you know, taking over the means of industry, government taking over the banks and that kind of thing. So the government runs everything. And what happens, of course, we see what happens in all the communist countries. It's basically everybody is kind of, uh, you know, the Soviet Union where they have an apartment and a job, and but nobody except for the elite really get rich. Huey Long was talking about his whole program. Think of the, the name of it, Every Man a King, but no one wears a crown. He wanted everyone. He recognized, as I've said many times, that everyone could be wealthy. And uh, one one thing I I found I find amazing. I try to stress this all the time. As of a couple of years ago, when I wrote the, uh, the updated uh, forward to uh, updated into well, Naomi Wolf wrote the, the new forward for the paperback book of Survival of the Richest. But I wrote an updated uh, section, and I found I, I looked statistically, and people have done statistics that. The amount of wealth in America is so astonishing that if they divided all the money in America, the known money, now this is, you know, outside of the unaudited Federal Reserve and the unaudited foundations, like, you know, who knows how much wealth is in the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation. And that's where Huey would go after if he was today, guarantee that, because he would see where that wealth was. If you divided all the known wealth in America up, 
between every man, every man, woman, and child, we have $331,000, $341,000, something like that. Every man, woman, and child. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody do that, and neither was Huey Long, but it gives you an idea of how sinful the disparity of wealth is. When you have you know, somebody with $100, $100 billion or more, and you have other people that are sleeping on the street. Right. I, I mean, it's a great point. I think even that introductory speech, he says like 70% of the people he was talking to cannot pay their debts. And we're not in much of a different position right now in the U.S. where I think if they, there was a, a study where like 40 or 50% of the people cannot endure an extra $500 charge, which is really contextually really not that much money. So we're not that much different as far as uh, the social hierarchy and structure these days as it was in the 30s. Like you said, it's probably as good as when you're a kid, but I think think the it's gotten worse and worse as we've gotten into the you know po the new millenniums, but uh, yeah, I think his message is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just if you if you uh, look at the numbers and what you're talking about, and I go, my book, Survival of the Richest, and I would urge anybody interested in this, my book, Survival of the Richest, uh, really goes into, first of all, it has an entire section on Huey Long. It talks in depth about his assassination and many questions about that. Reasons why, I, you know, I don't think it was Dr. Carl Weiss, this young doctor at all, and his, his family doesn't think so either. Right. Still trying to get a hold of them to talk to them, and they have not felt that way forever. It was, it was unfair to, to, to blame them. But uh, if you look at his at the at the, uh, the numbers for our society, and this is keep in mind, this was written well before this absurd pandemic hit us last year. So this the shutdown alone has obviously wreaked havoc with the disparity of wealth because Ron Paul Ron Paul called the first stimulus bill the greatest transfer of wealth in history from the middle class to the elite, and uh, they they have taken so much more of the wealth. So, but even before that, if you just look at the numbers we had then, uh, the one number I like to talk about is the bottom 50% of Americans, half of America, is making less than $27,000 less than $27, a year and has less than 1% of the collective wealth. Right. Nothing. Basically, yeah. half of yeah. That was then. Now, especially if you have uh, however many, 10 million or however many illegals are going to be granted amnesty, obviously they're at the very bottom. So they're just expand that 50%. And as, as the poor people have more children, and we know they tend to have more children than, than the people because they, they don't worry about necessarily affording all that becomes an idiocracy thing where that 50% grows that has nothing. And we can see the middle class, those of us that are hanging on by our fingernails, trying to stay in the middle, what's left of the middle class, it's being squeezed out by yeah. the people at the top who are running the mess and, and the, this huge bottom that has nothing. And that's why the uh, universal, Huey Long would not have liked, I don't think he would have liked the universal basic income, but that's what's there is that they're going to eventually offer that and people are going to have to take it. Or a lot of people will, because there won't be jobs and uh, there, it's right. just going to give you just enough to get by and maybe buy some consumer products. And it's, and you'll Huey be totally Long. dependent on the state. Once they tell you to do, <laughs> well, we'll take away your universal income. And I mean, that's what the whole, that's the whole temptation of the U. BS, yes. universal basic income is that they don't know all the strings that are going to be attached. They're already attaching tons of strings to the vaccination. UBS would right. just be a disaster for humanity. I mean, oh, American. Yeah. Absolutely. Unlimited immigration is a disaster too. I'm not against immigration. If you say you're only for legal immigration, you're a Nazi, but I think just opening the borders is so insane 
It's so crazy for the whole society. It makes everybody poorer. You've got rapists, pedophiles. It's so stupid. I just can't even believe the government condones all this. So, oh yeah, Hugh, I wish Huey Long was around these days. I mean, 42 is so young. He achieved and made a name for himself going to governor and then making it to the Senate, what, in 34? He died in 35, is that right? Can you talk about um, kind of the things around his assassination that don't make sense? I mean, he had kind of like the morbidity of almost JFK, where JFK was sick and kind of knew people wanted to kill him. And I think that I saw that same thing in Huey Long. He told uh, morbid jokes. He had tons of uh, security. Maybe you can talk more about that. Oh, I think Huey, Huey Long knew. I mean, he said he was a man in a hurry. He was trying to, and I think he knew he wasn't long for this world because, I mean, he's talking, you know, and I think those of you out there that don't believe in conspiracies, consider why anyone and why we just kind of all say not an appreciation when somebody's talking about really controversial stuff, accusing people in power and the very wealthy of, you know, great crimes and corruption. If, if none of that's true, then why would any of these people have to anything to fear? Why would they necessarily have a target on their back? You know, because after after all, these people, hey, you guys are crazy. And they, people need to think about that, you know, why and why so many of them do end up dying and they do. But Huey Long was probably, uh, we can't even imagine how, the, uh, just to give you an idea of something else on Huey Long that people don't realize. First of all, he was the, one of the first critics of the Federal Reserve. He was already criticizing it. The Federal Reserve was very, has only been around for about 20 years at that point. Huey already saw through it. He was already talking about the foundations of his time, which were the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation that just started, the Carnegie Foundation for International Peace, which is a joke. And actually, had, as I showed in Crimes and Cover-Ups, uh, the minutes of that showed that they advocated for war. <laughs> well, calling, and uh, and that's, that's, you know, people can read about that in my book. But uh, these, these things are all what they you know, are not what they appear to be. But Huey Long was a man of peace. He opposed World War I. He would unquestionably have opposed World War II. His, he wrote a little book called My First Days in the White House, which was posthumously published after his assassination in 1935. In it, he had the audacity to you know, name his entire fictitious cabinet. These are people who he would have chosen had he been elected president. And just to, to really stick it into Franklin Roosevelt even more, who was his enemy, he busted him back down to assistant secretary of the Navy, which is what he'd been for. So you can imagine how sensed this arrogant, entitled one percenter who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, FDR, would, would think of that. I mean, I, I made, I'm sure once he realized that, he hated him even more. But right. he hears that, that Huey Long's secretary of war, he didn't have secretary of defense yet. Secretary of War would have been General Smedley Butler. It's the wow. greatest activist of all time. If you don't know, he wrote War is a Racket. He's still revered by the left. And when I tell people, they, they kind of turn because they do like Smedley Butler, but they hate Huey Long. I said, you know, they were very good buddies in real life. And Smedley Butler, when he found out he was going to be named Secretary of War in Huey Long's book, he called it the greatest honor of my life. Wow. And after, he, after Huey's assassination... Butler withdrew from public life and said, my interest in politics is over. Wow. So he and must have known. Was, was the whole conspiracy to overthrow Roosevelt, that hadn't even happened yet, right? I don't no, know. And, that, and Butler, that, see, that's one of those things where I, and I, I write about it in uh, Crimes and Cover-Ups. I don't really understand that. And it's pushed a lot. First of all, there, no one, the powers that be had no reason to try to overthrow Roosevelt because he was surrounded by bankers. He was doing what he was told. And he was about to do everything he could to involve them in, the, in, in World War II. These are the things they all wanted. 
Uh, you know, he, he talked, you know, there was, his rhetoric sometimes was okay, but again, what did he do? And that's what Huey Long was incensed about it. Huey Long initially supported him. Another one of his supporters that uh, initially supported him and gritted hate him was uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, father of JFK and RFK, another guy that, you know, isn't talked about a lot. I write a lot about him as well. Treated completely unfairly by the court historians. Both Huey Long and Joseph P. Kennedy were really pro-peace and anti-war activists. And eventually you would see that in JFK and the Sons. JFK became the greatest uh, peace president, maybe the only one we've ever had. But um, FDR, again, was was, uh, this when when Huey Long uh, was talking about something like, you know, putting Smedley Butler as the Secretary of War, that that shows you what would have happened in a Huey Long administration. How different would history have been if, and of course, I don't, you know, people say, oh my God, the Nazis would have taken over the world. I don't think so. But certainly it would have been completely different if America had not entered that war. Certainly you wouldn't have had a Pearl Harbor because Huey Long wouldn't have, you know, conducted a false flag to wave them in like FDR did. So I had to think about how different things would have been. Now, the one good thing that came out of the New Deal was the uh, legislation in 1938, which created the 40-hour work week and the concept of overtime, great legislation, things we've taken for granted. You know, Republicans in recent years are really trying to eliminate that. They don't like it. You know, they, don't, they, don't, they don't want the working people to have anything. Right. But that, that was all because of the pressure from Huey Long and uh, Gene Debs and other people on the left for something much more radical. Huey Long was proposing a 30-hour, maybe 20-hour work week. He was proposing every worker to have at least a month of vacation, guaranteed. Uh, these were radical things. So, but out of that, you know, a, a watered down version in 1938 happened, which of course was was still a boon for the masses because most people don't realize until that time, uh, poor and working class people didn't have vacations. There was no such thing as vacation time. It was just for the rich. So, so this was. Uh, Huey's lobbying at least did result in that. But other than that, I mean, Roosevelt talked, you know, said one thing, but, it, you know, he, he was invariably, uh, most of his administration was uh, revolved around plotting and, and trying to enter us into World War II. Right. And I mean, Long kind of had a good legacy. He, I think his son became a senator, like his family still kind of stayed involved in Louisiana politics, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Russell, Russell Long was his uh, son who was in, in Senate for a long time. And if you watch the film JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK, although it's it's kind of you know, some people say it was Hale Boggs, but Oliver Stone portrays Walter Matthau as playing uh, Russell Long. And Russell Long in the movie is is and that may have happened. Again, it's a little questionable, but Russell Long may have been the one who stoked Jim Garrison's curiosity. You know, he had and, 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 and caused him. Reopening and that dog don't hunt and all the lines he had right. there, like all the southern kind of Louisiana. I know right. a guy from uh, uh, Baton Rouge and talks just like that. Oh my, you know, how's that kind of yeah. But that was that was Huey's son, and uh, and and in fact, uh, Huey's great granddaughter told me on the phone that uh, Russell Long, uh, she could remember at the dinner table that Russell Long would uh, would give them demonstrations of how impossible the single bullet theory was. I mean, oh, just picture that. I mean, I mean, that's that's really, really, really kind of an in, a cool tidbit. But uh, yeah, right. so but and Russell was, I think, a a great, uh, in, especially in terms of the politicians we have today. Certainly looked great in comparison. He was one of the you know Democrats, kind of a Dixie Democrat that you still had this, those kind of Southerners. But 
uh, I don't, you know, he wasn't Huey, and nobody else in the Long family ever picked up that mantle, and no other politician. And that's what I said, you know, that this is something where, and it shows you how dangerous the idea was, because this is something that's a winning, believe it totally, it's a winning political strategy. Huey Long, I think there were already 12 million members in the chair of the wealth chapters all across the country that were growing. Had a much smaller population. Uh, he he. Well, there's no question. If he had run in 1936, which he was, he had he announced for presidency. You know, a month before he was killed, if he had run for president in 1936 as an independent. He would have swung probably, almost certainly, swung swung the election to the Republican. And if he had gone against Roosevelt and challenged him, which he might very well have done, then uh, no telling what would have happened. Because you mentioned, you know, Roosevelt was very slick with his Brahmin. Roman accent, and he was a great speaker, very brilliant guy. Uh, but Huey Long was the only one who could have more than matched him. Huey Long would have been able to tear him up in a debate, and nobody else could have done that to Roosevelt Silver Time. But Huey Long was in a class of his own. Yeah, no, he was really starting to have a bigger effect outside of Louisiana, natural national prominence. Can you talk about the circumstances of his death and how he died? Well, he was in the, the new uh, Louisiana State Capitol building, which he had helped build, and uh, he was walking along the corridor, surrounded by a bunch of bodyguards, and the story goes that a, a 29-year-old actor, Carl Weiss, who was uh, the son of one of Huey Long's many political opponents, although if you look into it, really, it doesn't appear that his father was much of any kind of a noteworthy opponent of Huey Long, but that's the story that it was one of Huey Long's, many of the people that hated him in Louisiana, and that his uh, son was, you know, I guess, something had been done about his father, which, again, it's unclear that anything was being Right. There's no father. evidence of motive, right? Yeah, exactly. No, and, and, was, and Weiss was very talented. I think he was a doctor. He had, he had had a professional career as a doctor. Like, he had just had a child. He was married, uh, yes. ostensibly happily married. Like, he doesn't fit the profile of the lone nut that the U.S. government's put out for some of these other uh, joke assassinations. It doesn't fit the profile. He was there. There's no question. And they lit him up. His bodyguards yes. shot him like 60 times. Like there's a very graphic picture of Weiss. After. They didn't wait. They, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they didn't wait two days like they did for Oswald. I mean, they just, I mean, they just, yeah, they were, he, he wasn't going to be able to explain anything. That's for sure. But, and, and most people don't realize Huey Long wasn't killed right away. He was awake. He was conscious, and uh, he stayed in the hospital. And then I, I go into all this in the book. It's uh, it's very questionable. His wounds weren't that serious. He should not have died. But right. his medical care. We know that one of the people that came in, I believe, was one. I, again, I, I I apologize. I, I write so many things, and I, I suggest everyone read the books so you can get the exact details. But there was a person who was in, directly, and I believe, he was a surgeon. That was a known political opponent of uh, Huey Long, and, and it's, to his credit, supposedly had somebody on the other side watch him or something. Wise, but regardless, very questionable circumstances. He should not have died, and he lingered for a few days. But uh, yeah, it's just the know. whole thing is super sketchy. The family doesn't believe Weiss was did it. There was gun placements. There was evidence that Weiss didn't even have a gun. So right. somebody went out to his car and got his gun and brought it back in. So there yeah, was some super sketchy things going on. Yeah, decades later, you have when I, I have it again. I, I apologize for not remembering the exact details, but there, 
I think it was a sheriff's deputy or something that talked about decades later about planting the gun on him and, uh, uh, you know, right. directly talking about that. So, I mean, these are things that should have been looked at. But and again, I think that what happens is, especially in some of you see this a lot with JFK as well, where a lot of the uh, there's so much anti-Kennedy stuff where the uh, so many people in the establishment still hate the Kennedys. And so the mantra is usually, well, you know, he was so horrible. He was doing all this horrible stuff. And so, you know, who cares why he died? We don't even really care. So when you try to besmirch the reputation of somebody, then people don't care as much. So if you make them out to be an icon, uh, people might realize, well, maybe he was killed because he was trying to do something good. In Huey Long's case, they have just torn into his reputation. And he did right away. Like I said, the obituaries of the New York Times just were uh, unbelievable. Right. Write about a U.S. politician like that, but and they actually, I think, started out saying we're going to attempt to be kind. You know, you were attempting to be kind, all right. I see. If people can watch the, uh, there's never been, I certainly nothing fair to Huey Long since I wrote till I wrote Survival of the Richest. But uh, Ken Burns had a Ken Burns of all people who's obviously very committed establishment left orthodox leftist. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, we can talk about some of his other stuff. His work on the Central Park Five, in my opinion, was terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's 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 a typical conventional leftist, and but he's very skilled at what he does. Like uh, Michael Morris as well. They're both good documentarians. But he uh, he put out a, a thing on Huey Long, and it's the best. It, 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 just looking at it, you realize how biased it is. But it's the best because it has no narration, and it's it has a bunch of people talking about Huey. And 90% of what they're saying is bad. But he does have some of like the, the poor blacks and whites talking about how great he was and stuff. Uh, no he probably got financed by that from some foundations. I would go back through and see where he gets oh, the financing. Abs oh, absolutely. But you can, you can <laughs> see in, in, the, in the film, Mrs., Mrs. Hotting Carter, who was, if you remember Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter's press secretary was Hotting Carter III, I believe it was. Who, of course, again, like all these people, and I talk about this is probably the as well. These families tend to perpetuate themselves in power. They're all related to each other. Yeah, right, true. They're all like Gerald Salenti says. They're born on third base and think they hit a home run. Right. Well, Hotting Carter III was the son of Hotting Carter Jr., who was the most powerful newspaper publisher in Louisiana during Huey Long's time. And he hated Huey Long. Huey Long. And he led the vicious press coverage against him. His widow was still alive at the time of the 1985 uh, Ken Burns documentary. And uh, you just you can still hear the hatred in her voice. Fifty wow, years yeah. at fifty years after they Maybe killed her, still hating. Same thing with Kennedy. They yeah, just oh. still hate Kennedy. There's just a searching rabid, like he's got to go. And a lot of talk, a lot of rumors. The same type of thing about Kennedy and Long. Like people talking before they got the man. This guy should just be taken out. You know, so yeah, they're put, they're leaving leaving that environment the assassination is happening within the culture. I think is something that happened before. And what book? Which book of yours? Is your treatment of Huey Long, is that in Survival of the Richest? Yes, Survival of okay. the Richest. And that's 2017. So people can go check that out. And uh, thanks for sharing all that information. You know, it's just such an important person. I think he's almost been like the unperson from the history of the United States. Like, <laughs> yes, I think it's yeah. incredible. And I'm sure yeah. the elites do not want this guy going. I mean, yeah, I wish he was alive or something like that. They kind of uh, injustice. And, and it doesn't mean, and it's a good way of showing how somebody can be tarnished as a Marxist or a communist or something like that when they just want a little bit of a little more slice of the pie, you know, just a little bit more. I don't I mean, want to. Yeah. Yeah. He's the, he's the one that, that made me, uh, you know, really convert into a populist just learning about it. Because I love the idea of the populist for the people. 
they're outside the left or right paradigm. And uh, that's why both the left and the right hate him, because he was talking about the common people. You don't hear any communists or socialists. I mean, Bernie Sanders, people like that. I mean, they'll, they'll kind of dance around the edges of some of that. But you listen to the way Huey Long talked. And again, he was stressing he wanted to lift everyone up. Right. You know, some of these, some of these other leftists, it ends up everybody gets you know turned down. You know where they're they're going. I mean, just look at the communist rhetoric. The communist rhetoric never talks about the very wealthy. They always talk about the bourgeois, which is the right. middle class. They right. hate the middle class. The bourgeois. They hate the middle class. They kill the middle class. That's really <laughs> what they're trying to do. I mean, right. this guy's trying to make people with the middle class not yes. kill them. Education, wealth, lower taxes, efficient government. Um, Don Jeffries, thanks so much for sharing. Where's the best place for people to get your books? Well, you know, you can you can check. Obviously, they're on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere else. Uh, and you can also keep up with my writing at donaldjeffries.media or donaldjeffries.news. I write regularly on Substack and on my blog. But uh, yeah, you can you, you you do a search for me, and you'll probably find out more than you want to know. But all my books are out there, readily available. Gotcha. And your new book? Can you talk a little bit about your new book that's coming up? Yeah, it's going to be called On Borrowed Fame, uh, Money, Fame. Mysteries, and Corruption in the Entertainment World. So it's actually uh, about showbiz. And uh, you know, I, I write about different things, not just politics. But this, there's a lot in it that uh, it's, it's not really that out of character for me because I go into a lot of the uh, historical mysteries there. You know, I talk a lot about Marilyn Rose's death, John Belushi's, Alana Woods, I mean, uh, Natalie Woods. Uh, we go into all that. Elvis Presley, there's, there's questions about all these. And I go into ties in with the survival of the riches because uh, what attracted me to the subject is how unfair and unequitable the system in Hollywood is. Well, so many people who were famous and looked like they had a great career didn't do well. And they didn't, for whatever reason, they, they, a lot of them died broke and others, of course, were fabulously wealthy. And uh, during the course of the book, I talked to lots and lots of uh, older entertainers and on television shows way back when or in band. So I think people will be interested. I've got some nice blurbs from people like uh, Billy Gray was on best and susan olson is my friend uh with cindy brady on the brady bunch people like that so i i think people would be interested it's a little bit of a departure for me but it's it's i still look at it with my same kind of uh, you know radical perspective right investigative kind of journalism it's on borrowed fame right do you have a specific date of publication uh i the last i heard was november 1st we're still working at it so i, I think it's going to be out there around that that's close cool well good luck with that and come, come back and we can talk about that too you don't mind. I'd love to interview about that book or promote that book. And again, it's Donald Jeffries, J-E-F-F-R-I-E-S. Thank you so much for your time, Donald. Thank you. Thanks right, for having me, Wayne. Right. Take, Take care. Take care. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. All right. Stay there. All right.